We are in Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. I think we left off about verse 13 or so. Um, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12. Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate, that is outside the gates of the city. Verse 13. Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, that is outside, and bearing his reproach. Uh, bearing his reproach, that's probably a reference to the fact bearing his reproach, that is a reproach we would bear because we're Christians now, followers of Christ, and so we would bear his reproach in that regard. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. Very significant statement in verse 14, one that I think we need to be reminded of regularly. For here, that is here in this life, here on this earth, here while we are living on this globe that circles the sun the way it does, here we are. And we have no continuing city. We have no permanent city. There's really nothing permanent about what we're doing here. Other than, I guess you could say it has permanent results, certainly. The results will carry on into eternity, that is. You might even say consequences. I don't know if you want to say results, consequences, effects, however you want to word it. But certainly we know from 2 Corinthians 4, everything we see is temporary, is passing. No wonder we sing a song, this world is not our home. Here we are, but uh, straying pilgrims. Uh, Peter often uses that phrase or something similar to it, just to emphasize that our time on this earth is short. Truly, this world is not my home. I think I've emphasized time and time again, but I don't think you can overemphasize it. Uh, Christians really don't need to feel at home in this world. When you see all of the evil in it, the sinful things of the world, the things going on, uh, we don't need to feel at home here. Don't get too comfortable here. I often say if you want to plant roots, that's roots. That's fine. Don't plant them too deep because the time will come when you're going to pull them up and move on. So we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. We are seeking now, striving for, seeking after that permanent city which is to come. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to him and giving thanks to his name now. So let us offer this sacrifice. And you know, it's, it's interesting that when we study all of the Old Testament sacrifices and things, sometimes you'll ask, do we offer sacrifice today? And people may be quick to say, no, we don't offer sacrifices today. We actually do offer sacrifices today. They're just a different type. That is, we're offering spiritual sacrifices rather than the types they offered under the old law. And here is telling us to offer the sacrifice now of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, and giving thanks to his name. When you talk about offering the praise of God, and that is the fruit of our lips, probably one of the things that come to mind is, is our singing. And now that's part of our worship. And that's a sacrifice. It's a spiritual sacrifice that we're offering to God. And I would agree with that. I'm not so certain I would limit that exclusively to our singing there why wouldn't it uh, include basically anything with to do with our lips that offers praise to God so it's not certainly I don't think it'd be limited to our singing it's much more than that but the fruit of our lips ought to be praise to God and giving thanks to God giving thanks to his name you know we can use our uh, tongues if you will in in bad ways uh, we can speak uh, 
negatively of someone. We can have corrupt speech, and the Bible tells us that we're going to avoid that. But we can also use our lips, our tongue, you know, our, to speak uh, good things and to be used in a good way. And that's what he's telling us here. Let's use that to offer uh, praise to God. Now, verse 16, but to do good and to communicate, forget not. And it is simply don't forget now. To do good and to communicate uh, it doesn't really mean to talk to each other. Don't forget to talk to one another. If you're reading from the King James, it says, but to do good, don't forget to do good and to communicate. And uh, other translations may say something along of sharing. And that's more the ideal it is. Use what you have. You know, if God's placed something in your hands, use it as you have opportunity. Use those things as you have opportunity to do so uh, to help others, to do good and to share. Communicate, forget not. Give to those who are in need. Help somebody out, you know. Uh, we often talk about how programs are put in place to help help those who need it and people take advantage of it oftentimes. I understand all that. But the fact that some will take advantage of it does not mean that we should take advantage of opportunities to help others when they need it. Uh, what do we read in Galatians 6.10 there? Let us do good as we have opportunity. Let us do good unto all men, especially the household of faith. But notice he goes on to say after that, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. And so he's encouraging those at Galatia to continue to do well, continue to help others, continue to share uh, Acts 10 and verse 38, simply speaking of Jesus in Acts 10, 38, real simple statement, but he went about doing good. You know, what'd you do today? Yeah, <laughs> anybody asked Jesus, what'd you do today, Jesus? I doubt if they asked him, man, maybe, probably somebody did, you know. Well, I went about doing good. <laughs> it's kind of a simple phrase, isn't it? But that ought to be uh, something that really would be able to describe us in our behavior. He went about doing good. Um, uh, but to do good and to communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifice, God is well pleased. Now, um, and there's another sacrifice in verse 16. He used the word sacrifice in verse 15 to describe the fruit of our lips, giving praise to God. But here the idea of doing good and, and uh, helping others, maybe even not limited to financial, but there would certainly include that. It's kind of a financial connotation to the term. The idea of sharing, but don't forget to do that. But that's a sacrifice now that God is well pleased with. You don't often think about this. I don't think about it anyway. I guess maybe as much as I should. But Ephesians 4 and verse 28. If I'm reading Ephesians 4, 28 correctly. Um, you know, you ask the question, well, why do you go to work? Why do you go to work? And somebody says, well, you know, i got to go to work. I mean, i got to. Have a paycheck. I got to pay the bills. I got a house payment and all those kind of things. You know, got to put put food on the table. That's why I go to work. Well, that's true, but you know, I think there's more to it than that, isn't there? Look at Ephesians four and twenty-eight. Uh, let him who steals steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working or performing with his own hands what is good. Don't steal anymore, but use your own hands now to work. And do what is good. But notice he says in verse 28, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. Have you ever thought maybe we go to work and one of the reasons we do that is not just to pay our own bills and take care of our family, but perhaps to help others who are in need as well? Seems that's what we're reading in Ephesians 
It's a very big part of our lives as Christians. It should be is is um, is helping others. And when opportunities come up to help someone, we ought to look for ways to make it work. We ought to look for ways we can do it instead of uh, thinking why it won't work. You know, we ought to look for ways that we can do it. Verse 17, Obey them to have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Verse 17, I don't have any doubt in my mind that's a reference to the elders in the church in verse 17 because he tells us, Obey them that have the rule over you. And so we're the, they have the rule over us, meaning elders in the church now have rule over you, meaning they have authority. And it's, it's not just authority in terms of living an example, as some would say. That's a limitation of authority. That's not the case at all. But certainly the elders have authority. And because they have authority, we are to submit to them and we are to obey them. Verse 17, because elders now watch for your souls. That's really the purpose of, of, of the eldership. It is and should be the pur- purpose of an eldership is to watch for souls. It's about people. It's about souls. It's about helping each other go to heaven. It's about protecting the flock from danger. No wonder you read what you do in Acts 20 and 28 where they're told there to, to take heed and watch over the flock. He says the time is going to come one day when, when uh, the wolves are going to come after the flock. And you better be ready to watch out for them. You better be ready to protect them. He even says uh, the wolves, sometimes the wolves may come from your own number, from your own midst even. So you've got to be on guard. But he's telling them in verse 17, Obey them to have the rule over you. That's going to be the elders. Submit to them. Now, now what, what's he saying? Look at verse 17 here. They have rule over us, meaning they have authority. Because they have authority, we're to obey them and we're to submit to them. And then tie that in with a watch for your souls. Something interesting, thing, I, I believe, about authority is if you read the Bible... And when it talks about authority and obeying and responsibility and that type of thing, authority and responsibility always go hand in hand. You can't separate them. Think about that. You can't separate them. Now that's true in areas outside of the church. It's also true in the church. But authority and responsibility go hand in hand. You never have one without the other. Uh, Imagine you're going to give the police department the responsibility for keeping the town safe. They're responsible for keeping the town safe. But you don't have authority to ever arrest anybody. Well, see, if you don't have that authority, you can't carry out your job. Now, on the other hand, if you give them authority for no purpose, no reason, no responsibility, you just give them authority, well, you see what kind of problems you'll have with that, too. That's just authority run amok. And then they abuse their authority, take advantage of that, and you've got a bad situation as well. Authority, you could, anytime you talk about authority, you put responsibility in there. A parent has authority over their children. Why? Why do they have authority? Well, because they have responsibility to rear their children properly, and you can't do that without authority. You can't give them the, uh, the responsibility to do that if they don't have authority. Now, on the other hand, if you give them authority without a reason... And the responsibility is not there. Again, you just have abuse of authority. Same thing with the eldership here in verse 17. He's saying they have authority. 
He didn't really come out and say it, but it's certainly implied when he says obey them and they have the rule and submit to them, they have authority. Now why do they have this authority? Verse 17, because they have the responsibility. See, they have the responsibility of watching over our souls. Uh, God doesn't give anybody authority just just somebody to be the boss. You know, sometimes say, well, somebody's got to be the boss. So we're, no, that's not why you have authority. You have authority because there's, God has given them the responsibility as well. Notice he says in verse 17, as they that must give account. They're going to give account of our souls one day. I think a lot of times elderships don't always realize the significance of that. Uh, again, it's about people. It's about souls. It's about helping one another go to heaven. It's about protecting the flock. And sometimes you can get caught up in all kinds of stuff other than that if you're not careful. And so, but we're to do it. Notice, notice then we're to help them do uh, their job, if you will. We're to help them carry out their responsibility with joy when we obey them and submit to them and don't be grieved to them or thorn in the side then they're able to do it with joy and not with grief. Notice he says, for that is unprofitable for you. If I refuse to submit, that's unprofitable for me, isn't it? So it's a serious thing for the eldership to consider, but it's a very serious thing for uh, the sheep as well, the members as well. Uh, Verse 18, pray for us, for we trust we have a good conscience in all things, willing to live honestly. Uh, it's, It's... it's interesting to us, I believe it's interesting to me, certainly in verse 18, that whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, I believe it's Paul, but that's all right. We don't know for certain. We do know it's written by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he's saying, pray for us. It, it, uh, I would think it would be very humbling if you heard Paul say that, or read Paul say that. Uh, I think it speaks of a humble attitude on his part, but I think it would be very humbling as well for the one who heard it to have him ask and pray for us. For we trust we have a good conscience. I think what he's saying there is uh, pray for us. We trust that we do things from a good and sincere motive. Uh, you know, nothing, nothing, uh, nothing insincere about what they're doing. They've got a pure and honest heart. They do what they're doing out of good motives here. They have a good conscience in all things willing to live honestly. In everything, live honestly, sincerely, upright. Be people of integrity. Uh, Do things that are ethical and not unethical. Uh, But but verse 18, then live live honestly. Uh, Some translations may say we desire to conduct ourselves uh, honestly or we can desire to conduct ourselves honorably. In all things, a life that others can look up to and be res- and be respected because of that. But I beseech you, verse nineteen. I beseech you the rather to do this that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great Shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do His will. Look back at verse twenty. Now the God of peace. That phrase, something along those lines, is, is used oftentimes to speak of God. It's God, uh, the God of peace. Uh, well, true peace really only comes from God, doesn't it? Uh, and we understand 
I think I hope you understand what he's talking about here. I mean, we're certainly not always going to have. There's not always going to be peace in this world. There's always some kind of constant strife among nations, among men, among governments. They're always at odds with one another, sometimes at war. The conflict's always there. But even in the midst of all of that, can you not have peace in your life still in the middle of all that? Can you not have peace in your life in, the, in spite of all that? But particularly maybe the... the the stronger point to remember even is certainly we ought to strive to always have peace between us and God. I don't want any conflict between me and God. Sometimes you hear people say, well, he just, man, he's just always in something. He likes, he likes conflict, you know. I guess maybe there's some people that always like to stir something up and always like conflict. Most people don't like conflict. Most people rather ignore it. Sometimes I guess it's a, is conflict ever a necessary thing? Maybe. Certainly conflict needs to be dealt with and not ignored, but I don't want conflict between me and God. And really all of us have had conflict between us and God at one time in the past when we sinned. So that's why we have to deal with and take care of it. More than anything else, we want peace between us and God. Now he's saying in verse 20 that it was God who brought Jesus from the dead. We may not often think about that, do we? We think Christ rose from the dead and, you know, how did he rise from the dead? How was he raised? Maybe from his own power, but uh, let's look at Acts 2, verse 24 and 32. And it speaks actually of, of God the Father raising Christ from the dead in Acts 2. Uh, I'll find it here in a minute. Acts 2 and verse 24 and then 32. Acts 2 and 24. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. So it's, tell, it's telling us in verse 24 that it was God who raised Christ from the dead. And then in Acts 2 and verse 32, this Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Uh, also, I believe if you go to Romans 5, I believe it's in Romans 5, that through Christ's resurrection, He was declared to be the Son of God with power, power over death. So His resurrection is certainly significant. We often talk about His death, but... Obviously, right along with that is, is his resurrection. If he's in the grave, we have no victory over the grave either. So, uh, the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. Uh, that great shepherd of the sheep. Uh, Alright, verse 20. Who is the shepherd of the sheep? In verse 20, well, the great shepherd of the sheep was well, our Lord Jesus. Look how many times you read in the, in the book of John about Jesus being the shepherd. And, and what, do the, what do the wolves do? They, what do they come for? You know, Jesus said the wolves come to seek and destroy and to kill. Jesus said, but I lay down my life for the sheep. He, he, he was... Uh, he, he does everything possible to care for us and up to the point, or not up to the point, but even including giving his life for us. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, though the, uh, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. And, and notice the significance of the word everlasting covenant. Uh, the old law, the old covenant was temporary, wasn't it? It, it, it was not without fault. But I always think you better be careful when you say that. The old law actually did what it was designed to do. It, was, it, did, it did what it was intended to do. 
it's not like it had a fault in the sense that after enough time goes by, God found a fault in it. He found a flaw in it and found out it wasn't going to work. Let's go to something better. It actually, it was designed to bring men into a recognition of sin and to lead men to Christ. And you see that when you study all the, the shadows and the types in the old law with their uh, corresponding antitype in the New Testament. Yes, sir. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to That's all right. Uh, do you think man would ever have accepted the fact that they could not save themselves if God had not shown us that we could not save ourselves? It, it, it's a good question. I would... Let me see if you've asked if I say it the way you did. Do you think man would ever have realized he could not have saved himself if God had not shown us exactly. something like that? I would, I, I just on the spur of the moment here, I tend to say no, he could not. Exactly. Uh, I think that's why you know it wasn't the fault wasn't with the law. The fault was with us. You know we couldn't, we didn't follow the law, so we didn't. And it's that, it's that we didn't follow the law. It's not so much that we couldn't. Uh, that's a good point. It had a, it had a fault, but but really it, it was with us, wasn't it? That we could not obtain salvation for ourselves, and really that was the purpose of the law. Man was not able to to bring salvation to himself, and so. You know, the, the fullness of time, God took forth the Son, born of woman, born under the law, redeemed those who were born under the law, Galatians chapter 4. Uh, when, when we had figured out, you know, through his law, we can't do this. We can't do this on our own. He sent his Son to accomplish salvation for us. Now, we can be obedient to Christ, but we couldn't live perfectly under the law. And the only way that we can save ourselves under the law is to live perfectly under the law. No man was capable of doing that. No man was capable of doing that. Well, uh, Cindy, you've got your hand up. Are you going to Luke 1.6? Probably. Probably. Then let's say, let's say that's where you're going then. Uh, are, are, are you all like, are, are you, are you, Brandon, are you a law-abiding citizen? Pretty much. Which ones are you unwilling to go along with? No, I'm not. No, really, if I ask y'all, are y'all law-abiding citizens? I hope every one of you says yes. Surely, surely we can say we're law-abiding citizens, can't we? Does that mean you've never, ever in your life, ever broken a law? If I say, well, I'm a, your law... Uh, Sam, are you a law-abiding citizen? You can go ahead and say it. I am. I'm not trying to put you on the spot because what I'm going to ask applies to every one of us here. Has there ever been a time in your life where you've broken the law? Yes, yes every one of us here can say that. Um, this may not be the best example. We went to uh, Kingsland, Texas this past weekend all but about 150 miles of that 450 mile trip was interstate. Did I break the law coming home? I'm putting myself on the spot. Maybe I did, but I'm telling you. You get on I-35 between Austin and Dallas, 
you can put your cruise control on 85 and you better stay in the right lane when you do it because you're going to get passed day and night by everybody. That may not be the best example. I guess I was going over the speed limit, wasn't I? But I was also trying to just stay out of the way and keep from getting run over also. That may not be the best example. As long as everybody else does it, it's okay, isn't it? <laughs> everybody else is doing it. I don't know. If I ever get pulled over, I'm going to try that on a police officer. One time. Well, they were doing it. Uh, I'm just telling you, you better do it. If you don't want to get run over, you better do it. Well, but there is a circumstance in which, and I don't know if you know this, but in driving a truck, if you're on the interstate and everybody's, everybody is doing a certain mile an hour and you're doing slower than that, even if you're doing the speed limit, you can get a ticket. There are some laws that have to do with prevailing traffic and weather conditions and that kind of thing. Yes, ma'am, I interrupted you, believe, or tried to be started or something. Go ahead. Look at Luke 1 and verse 6. Well, let's look at Luke 1 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous in the sight of God. Now, did they live under the old law? Sure did. They were living under the old law, and they were both righteous in the sight of God walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. You could be forgiven under the old law the same as you could be under, you can be under the new law. Sure. If you offer the proper sacrifices at the proper, at the proper time and did everything that the law commanded you to do for forgiveness of those sins, you were still blameless. That was all part of the law, actually. Well, if you do this, well, then there's your sacrifices and you'd be found blameless. So they were blameless. And they follow the law. Did that mean they never, ever sinned in any way? Did anyone? It doesn't mean that. But, but, they, but they could keep the law. That's why I say we certainly describe ourselves, I hope, as law-abiding citizens. If, if you're not a law-abiding citizen, Doug, you leaving the scene tonight, right? I, you know, see how my memory is. If, if any of you here are law-abiding citizens, Doug, don't quit the invitation song till they come down here and repent. <laughs> right? Somebody please come so it doesn't take too long. But, uh, but you see my point? We can live as law-abiding citizens, not to the, just our civil law, but to the law of God. You can do it. That doesn't mean you're sinlessly perfect. But look at First John, if we have an attitude of penitence and we confess our sins and always go to God in repentance and ask Him to forgive us of our sins, will He do it? Yeah. Of course He will. Sure He will. So the blood of bulls and goats never forgave sin. Never did. Again, Hebrews 9.15, they were only forgiven in the prospect of coming of Christ. And for some unimaginable way, if Christ had not died on the cross, then they'd still be lost in their sins. And in fact, we would be as well. Um, okay, so uh, the blood of the everlasting covenant. So this old law was very temporary in nature. Now this is permanent. And it will make you perfect now, make you complete, make you fully equipped to do God's will. Working in you that which is well-pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And I beseech you, brethren, suffer the word of exhortation, that is, patiently bear the word of exhortation. For I have written a letter unto you, 
13 chapters, and he says, I've written this letter to you in a very few words. It's like, well, there's a lot more I could have said. Maybe he's just saying, I've just touched the surface here. There's a lot more I could have said. Um, in fact, he says, I wrote this letter to you. Some say it was more of in the form of a, ser- ser- a sermon even than a letter. Know ye that our brother Timothy is set at liberty, with whom if he comes shortly I will see you. Salute all them that have the rule over you. Greet them, that is, that have rule over you. And all the saints, they of Italy, that is simply the Italians there. Grace be with you all. Amen. Verse 25.